This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, and I study the history of disease. And I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Today, we're going to talk about tuberculosis. Before we launch right into tuberculosis, we agreed that we were going to sort of talk about a really important public health issue, which is the impact that race has on community health. So this could be an episode or a book or, you know, several books in and of itself. But we just wanted to quickly discuss the important role that race and discrimination plays in public health. And, and this has already come up in this podcast more than once in our discussion of how disease follows lines of inequality and when we talk about social determinants of health. But this also applies to care delivery, mental health, and just a whole myriad of other health issues. We just sort of want to call it out a little more actively before we get going today. Yeah, it's definitely one of our, our core themes for the simple reason that like we find it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to it's nice to take that strand of what we're doing and actually talk about how it, it operates. Yeah. I mean, I think like especially in light of current events, like we're thinking about it more specifically today as well in a way that we might not necessarily realize we do otherwise. And I think that's sort of what this whole thing is about is like acknowledging it and making sure we pay attention to it. Like Angel said, we discussed it in the context of COVID. Um, it came up a lot in cholera. It definitely came up in syphilis, um, if you listen back to those episodes. So let's dive in a little further to that. First, worth mentioning, is something that comes up a little less frequently in our discussions of disease, which is the way that structural and institutionalized racism results in physical violence against people of color. In fact, in the United States, police violence is becoming one of the leading causes of death of black men affecting one out of every 1,000. That and other inherent racisms also result in psychological stress that disproportionately affects marginalized communities. And that results in negative health outcomes such as an increased risk of suicide. Health outcomes such as quality of life, life expectancy, infant mortality, obesity, and a whole host of others are all affected by racism and discrimination. But in healthcare delivery in particular, rates of these diseases or health issues are disproportionately experienced in greater amounts by black communities and other minority communities. The main reason behind this is that racism affects the full spectrum of healthcare research and delivery, and therefore community and public health. Some communities might be underrepresented in data collection and measurement. Most are not adequately addressed in medical research. There's a lack of access to care or resistance to care seeking due to discriminatory practices from medical professionals. As we saw in the syphilis episode, where we talked about the Tuskegee experiment and the medical experimentation on black folk, there is a definite reason for this predisposition to avoid care. And Angeliki, you pointed out that there's a really great episode in the podcast 1619, which we have both started listening to. And it was episode four, How the Bad Blood Started. And I have a couple of resources later if anyone wants to read more about that. So all of these disparities mean that any health issues that might already be existing are exacerbated. We saw and are seeing that with things like syphilis, HIV, and of course COVID. 
um, health provision and public health, like most other disciplines, needs to be considered with an eye towards historic attitudes of racism and oppression. I'm speaking here largely in the U.S. context, but we see it all over the world. It comes from a historic oppression of black identifying people of color, and that legacy carries on today and negatively affects health outcomes. And just to like make it very finally, blatantly, and obviously clear, the color of your skin in and of itself doesn't have anything to do with your physical well-being, or at least it shouldn't. And these differences in health outcomes are the result of generations of social discrimination, racism, and oppression that now permeate healthcare, health delivery, and health-seeking behaviors. It's something that all healthcare providers, public health officials, and everyone, obviously, needs to take into account when they're researching, delivering, or evaluating care. Boom. <laughs> so we just wanted to put that out into the universe. So for anyone who is interested in reading more about race and health and how racism and uh, white supremacy can affect healthcare, I will recommend a few books and we'll put them in the show notes. So Black and Blue, The Origins and Consequences of Medical Racism is about racism within the medical profession. If you were interested in the Tuskegee experiment and you want to learn a little bit more about medical experimentation, there's a book called Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. There's another great book called Mental Health, Race and Culture, which talks about um, the intersection of those things. And mental health is already a really under-discussed issue in healthcare. So a good read. Just Medicine a cure for racial inequality in the American healthcare system. A book I'm looking forward to reading, which is called Reproductive Injustice, Racism, Pregnancy, and Premature Birth, which talks about the greater likelihood of those medical events happening amongst black women. Another book that I'm also really excited to read, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, which is about the origins of really necessary and vital practices by really important doctors in history who came up with them by experimenting on poor and powerless women, especially in the South in the 19th century in the context of black women. Um, and there's also just a general reading list that Harvard put out that's about racism and health, and we will also link to that. All right, having said all that, having clarified some things about race and health, uh, let's jump right into tuberculosis, shall we? Please, yes. Okay, so tuberculosis, or TB, which I will probably call it because otherwise I'm going to trip over my words, is caused by a bacteria called mycobacterium tuberculosis. Isn't it myco mycobacterium? I have no idea. Because <laughs> then you have a C and then you have an O or a U. It's K. I'm going to look it up. Mycobacterium. Mycobacterium. Tuberculosis or TB is caused by a bacteria called mycobacterium tuberculosis. The bacteria are airborne, and the disease is spread when someone sneezes or coughs, spreading droplets, which are then inhaled by another person. So the bacteria proceed through your upper respiratory system to your lungs, where they flourish, which is why one of the most common symptoms is a really terrible cough. It can then spread through your blood to other parts of your body, such as your spine, your bones, your kidney. There are actually multiple forms of TB, depending on which area is affected the worst. So there's just active TB, which is sort of the basics. Symptoms include weight loss, loss of appetite, night sweats, fever, and chills. There's pulmonary TB, which means TB involving the lungs. And that's probably what most people mean when they say TB. 
because along with those general symptoms, you get this really lasting cough. Often you're coughing up blood, you get chest pain, shortness of breath. Then there's extra pulmonary TB, which is when the TB affects a part of the body outside of your lungs. And the symptoms there will vary depending on the type. So you can have TB in your lymph nodes, your skeleton, something called military TB, which affects multiple organs, kidney TB, liver TB, the list goes on. And then there is latent tuberculosis, which is when bacteria is in your body, but basically your white blood cells do such a good job of protecting your immune system that they capture it and they sort of build this shell around the bacteria and it doesn't make you sick and you can't infect others and it's just there. And if you get tested for TB, it will show that you are positive, but you're not getting ill. However, it can turn into active TB. For example, if your immune system gets lowered, um, and that is the most common form of TB is latent TB. Something like 20% of the entire global population has it, which is just a crazy statistic. There are two other forms of the TB bacterium called MDR and XDR TB, and I'm just going to leave that and talk about them later in my section. So how would we go about getting tested for tuberculosis? Well, there are a few different types of tests. The most common form is called a sputum test, which is a word I have a love-hate relationship with. <laughs> so sputum is when you cough up like the mucus from deep in your lungs. Like it's not a clear saliva. It's like that gunky stuff mm. all up in your chest. Like think about that cold you've, we've all had, haven't we? Where mm-hmm. like you feel like there's something stuck in there and like you start coughing so much that you cough, you cough up like a glob of something. That's yeah. sputum, right? That's what they're looking for. Great. Yeah. Just to clarify. (laughs) So you place that sample in a culture and that shows results in one to eight weeks. There is a 24 hour rapid sputum test that can be used um, sort of as a confirmatory. Like we're pretty sure you have it. See? Sputum. (laughs) I just love, I just love the sequence of words of rapid sputum test. It just, it just trips (laughs) off the tongue. Uh, And we thought TB would just be depressing. (laughs) I mean, it is. Just wait. (laughs) There's also a skin test where they inject a liquid into your skin and it like forms this bubble um, and then the bubble sinks in after a few hours and then they diagnose you based on the like width of the circle. I don't like that. No, I also do not like that. I've had to get a couple of those and it's so unpleasant. And then you also can get a blood test and a chest x-ray. Okay, so if you do any of these various different kind of tests and you are found positive... There are a few, what they're called are lines of treatment. So the first line treatment for tuberculosis, or basically just the way you're treated for normal TB, is already pretty intensive. So typically TB is treated with a really hardcore phase of antibiotics for two months with a sort of less intense but still like daily pill taking of antibiotics for a following four to seven months. Ideally, you're being treated for six months if everything goes according to plan. Um, I mentioned MDR-TB and XDR-TB earlier. And again, I'll go into that more later. But just as a highlight, with those types of TB, treatment can go past 24 months. It's also just worth noting here when we're talking about the basics that TB is a very high-risk disease with HIV. That's called co-infection, which is just when you have an infection with another disease. And HIV... One of its inherent characteristics is that it lowers your body's immune system, making you more vulnerable. So that's making you both higher risk to catch TB, but also, as we discussed earlier, your latent TB 
you're being protected by your immune system, so it's staying latent. If you catch HIV, your latent TB can become active much more easily. Nearly all people who have HIV and get tuberculosis will die. And in fact, TB actually causes one in three HIV deaths. I said earlier that 20% of the global population has TB, but in terms of where it's really located, where the majority of the cases are, and I'm sure no one will be surprised to hear this, over 95% of cases and deaths from TB occur in developing countries. Although, unlike many of the other diseases we talk about, every country pretty much still has a few cases of it. Uh, and that's the, the nitty gritty on TB. You ready for some history? I am. I'm excited about this because I feel like all my favorite like historical novels and you know the, that period of time, I'll talk about tuberculosis. So yeah. I'm excited. I mean, a lot of the classics feature tuberculosis for the simple reason that it was like everywhere in Western Europe and North America in the 19th century. Like it, I think I read somewhere that it was causing like a quarter of all deaths for about a hundred years. I'm going to give you some basics about the history of TB. It's a disease that's talked about differently depending on the socioeconomic status of the person suffering. Um, and the differences are pretty stark. And debates over its origin and its mode of transmission really affect the way that it is considered by medical professionals and by the general public. Um, and it affects treatments as well. So I'm going to go through some origins, share a fun medieval slash early modern TB anecdote, and then we'll be talking a lot about <laughs> Europe during the Industrial Revolution, simply because that's where the popular conceptions of TB originate. I don't know, I just, I sort of like had some articles lying around in my room um, from previous like classes I've taken on the history of disease. And what I'm realizing now is that like I am horrifically Eurocentric in my education and like I don't think it should have taken me this long to realize it, but it's actually horrifying and I'm trying to do better, but it's a slow process for sure. I think that's a great realization and like being conscious of it. And it's like it's not just like you, like you are being taught by a group of professionals and the viewpoint that is the most common is is Eurocentric and that's poignant. Yeah. And actually I think I think it really depends on who's teaching as well. And I think it's quite telling that like the farther back you go in my educational experience, the more Eurocentric it gets. So like I'm happy to report that over time and as I got to the master's level and into doing the PhD, things got a lot more global because first of all it was fashionable and also my professors we're studying stuff from around the world. It's still worth remembering that my first experiences with history were very white and very Eurocentric. Second, second attempt at the origins of TB. <laughs> so the bacteria causing tuberculosis have been around for about 150 million years, according to this article I read. And modern TB is about 20,000 years old. So Egyptian mummies reveal skeletal deformities typical of tuberculosis and those from about those are from about 2400 BC and lesions that look like tuberculosis are present in Egyptian art the first written documents describing tb dating back to 3300 and 2300 years ago were found in china and in india and it's also in the biblical texts of deuteronomy and leviticus another biblical Again, disease with the <laughs> Bible references. 
Peruvian mummies from the same period show characteristic lesions, um, which shows that TB was present in South America pre-contact with Europe. And tuberculosis was also common in ancient Greece and Rome, um, and the ancient Greek name for it was phthisis. Talk about rolling off the tongue. I mean, <laughs> this is. I'm going to bring it up again in the naming section because um, it continues to be used. Ow. <laughs> throughout history. So, yeah, um, it's common in ancient Greece and Rome. It's present in the works of Hippocrates, and in ancient Greece, it's called phthisis. So, I'm not going to take you through the whole timeline of descriptions and scientific discoveries over time. But I will quickly mention Robert Koch. Uh, you'll remember that he discovered the anthrax pathogen and started the field of microbiology. Our hero. I don't know anything else about him except anthrax and TB, but um, he essentially proved that microorganisms could cause disease. So that's important. He did that with anthrax and he did that again with tuberculosis. So he identified, isolated and cultivated the tubercle bacillus. So yeah, he presented his results to the Society of Physiology in Berlin on the 24th of March, 1882. And then in 1905, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work on TB. And really? I wrote in my notes, man, that guy was busy. He was so busy. <laughs> man, we just keep learning more about him. So a note on names. As I mentioned before, the ancient Greeks called it phthisis. And later Europeans continue to use this word alongside consumption but it was also called the White Plague, and that's an expression that was coined in the 18th century, and it was called that because of the extreme pallor of the infected. Hmm. And we'll get to why that's important in a little while. Yes. So something that I found out while doing the research for this episode is that one of the diseases that I know and love, which is called scrofula, is actually a form of TB. <laughs> And scrofula is one of the group of symptoms that's caused by Mycobacterium bovis, uh, which is like TB of the glands and joints, otherwise known as the king's evil in Europe. And that name applies since the medieval, medieval period. And one of the treatments for it, which you're going to love, is the royal touch, which is exactly what it sounds like. Like the monarch will go and like touch someone with this kind of TB to try to get their lesions to go away. And it's probably the only semi-humorous thing we'll be talking about today. According to contemporaries, curing the, the king's evil could be done by royal touch. So the king or queen would lay their hands on the afflicted person and then give them a coin for their upkeep. And that eventually turned into like a whole ceremony. And it was first done in England by Edward the Confessor. So his dates are 1042 to 1066, it's his reign. And the royal touch became a royal prerogative and was thought to express the divine right of kings. So their curative powers for this disease were like a manifestation of the authority granted to them by God. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some fun facts about uh, the royal touch. Louis XIV of France is said to have touched 1,600 people one Easter Sunday. Oh my God. I would... That's... I don't want to do that. And... Charles II of England, while he was in exile in the Netherlands in the 1650s, was in such demand that a number of potential patients were trampled to death in the rush to be healed. 
Oh my god. So like I said it was semi-humorous and like it is, but it's also really grim, so I'm yeah. sorry about that. Queen Anne is the last English monarch to practice royal touching. Um, and she dies in 1714, so that's quite late. And in the French court, that continues to be practiced until like 1825. So like they had the revolution, they had a semi-restoration, and then the kings who came back were, were like, let's touch some scrofula patients. That was the best bit, right? Oh yeah, the other thing I wanted to say was that the exiled stewards continued to practice royal touching from their various places of residence, so like France, Italy, Scotland, until the end of the 18th century. And it's about like for the exiled stewards hanging on to every little tiny bit of their royal authority when actually they're beggars in foreign courts. And scrofula is also mentioned in Macbeth. And then I had one other remedy to share with you because I just thought it was funny. Um, it's an herbal remedy against scrofula, scrofula um, and it's figwort, otherwise known as scrofularia. And the reason it is an herbal remedy for this particular, um, for this particular disease is that the plant's roots looked like the lesions. <laughs> so as per the doctrine of signatures, people thought it would be like useful to heal the disease. So um, the prescription... Love the doctrine of signatures. I know, Sorry. right? <laughs> so the prescription, um, according to Nicholas Culpepper in 1650, is that the root should be hung around the neck of the patients with scrofula. They're not even ingesting it. They're just like hanging it around their neck. <laughs> And, like, I know it's bad to make fun of historical cures, but I still thought it was humorous. I like it. So, historically, there are a lot of explanations for tuberculosis. Moving away from the scrofula for now, tuberculosis has an ancient history with humans, and I already said that it appears in the writings of Hippocrates, mostly with the correct attribution of symptoms. The causes are still up for debate well into the 19th century, up until Koch, really. So one theory was that it was hereditary, and that is a theory that holds since Hippocrates. And then alongside, you have the theory of contagion, which comes to be in like the 16th century. And theories of contagion dating from the 16th and 17th centuries give a theoretical justification for fears that are already in the community, that um, individuals suffering from consumption or tuberculosis pose some sort of threat in the long run by their simple existence. And uh, the comparison with leprosy is an apt one here. So both heredity and contagion are popular explanations into the 19th century, as I said before, and they affect responses to those who are sick. So really important is that from 1500 to 1700 in Europe, anatomical knowledge is improving dissections are being carried out and people are really interested in finding out um, how the human body works. Pathological signs, so for example lung lesions, are identified and they prompt some environmental explanations. So for example that like the irritation in the lung is caused by improper food or ingested matter or maybe it could be the product of exhaustion so all of a sudden new treatments are coming out based on that evidence about like changing your diet or changing your environment or adhering to a regime of rest and the avoidance of stress, which is all well and good for some people, but for others who don't necessarily have the leisure to indulge in that, what are you going to do? So it's very much like 
cures for certain people, but not for others. Right. So romanticism is very much linked with tuberculosis, and I think it's one of the, the most important things to inform our view of tuberculosis, but it also uh, informed contemporary theories of how it was caused and how it should be treated. So first of all, what is romanticism? Romanticism is a movement in the arts and literature that originates in the late 18th century, and it emphasizes inspiration, subjectivity, and the primacy of the individual, and it has a special emphasis on the beauty of nature, and it's, um, it's known for the sublime, and it's also known for this like really creepy, tragic overtone, probably to do with TB. Some of its most important artists are Goya, William Blake, Shelley, both Mary and Percy Bysshe, Byron, Coleridge, etc. So between the late 18th century and the mid-19th century, people are observing that consumption is happening a lot in the upper and middle reaches of society. It's a disease of the upper classes for a lot of people. So the romantics are fascinated with illness and death, and many of them die relatively young between 1775 and 1850. So some of those who die are John Keats, Chopin, and the Bronte sisters, who all sicken and die of tuberculosis. So sometimes what they do is they travel for a change of environment. The fad changes as to which climate they should be going to, but wherever they do travel, they are shunned because of their illness, because obviously people are like afraid. And that adds to their tragic circumstances. So throughout this time, the wasted pallor of the late, the late stages of tuberculosis becomes fashionable and is seen as beautiful. So hence the white plague that I was talking about before. So people start to purchase whitening powders, trying to emulate that sign that you're going to die. Even in the art of the period, the pre-Raphaelites in England were exaggerating the thinness and the pallor of their models to make them more aesthetically appealing. How messed up is that? It's really messed up. It's so messed up. People are aspiring to that consumptive look because it's considered beautiful and because it's also associated with creative genius. And I think that's something we still see today, like that association between either illness or suffering and the production of things that are beautiful. So like the suffering tragic artist. The minute you started talking about like beautiful consumptive women who are romanticized, I immediately was like La Boheme. Yeah, that's what like, that is. She's like the muse. She's gorgeous. Yeah. She's thin. She's beautiful. She has a hacking cough and she dies extremely tragically and romantically and yeah. is beloved by all. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And she has this wonderful voice, but this is a really good segue for what I'm going to talk about next. Remember that in La Boheme, they're basically living in, in a slum and they are packed yeah. together. They are living in extreme poverty. And mm -hmm. that's the real demographic impact of the disease during the Romantic period. So in the first half of the 19th century, mortality rates from TB are between 300 and 500 per 100,000 in most Western countries. So in England and Wales, in 1851, total population is 18 million, and your mortality rate for TB is, is 50,000, and it's something that is ravaging poor communities, and it's called the greatest epidemic killer in the 19th century West. 
Mortality from TB declines in the second half of the 19th century in North America and Europe, but there's quite a lot of variation by area. So yeah, this is a disease that ravages the poor. Because of the boom of urbanization as a result of the Industrial Revolution. So while the romantic upper-class image of tragic suffering continues to exist, alongside that, TB comes to be seen as a social problem, and it's, it's definitely more accurately seen as a disease that ravages the poor. With the poor, obviously, there's the burden of stigma, with the associated poverty and tuberculosis in a narrative that becomes a narrative of individual failure. If you're rich or artistic, it's beautiful to have TB, but if you are poor and working class, then it's your fault. So it's, it's really unsurprising that TB becomes such a problem for, for the working poor. I mean, you've got, as I said, explosive urbanization as a result of the Industrial Revolution. People are crowded together in places with poor hygiene and ventilation. They're working long hours in crowded factories or offices. Their diet is insufficient, and it's low in vitamins and proteins. They're getting most of their calories from sugar and alcohol, with women even more deprived of vitamins and proteins because men are getting a larger proportion of, of the food and drink. So conditions are, are ripe for any crowd disease to spread, and with something as contagious as TB, it's not, it's not a surprise. So poverty is contributing to the spread of TB, but something that's also really important to highlight is that TB is exacerbating poverty as well. It's, it's worsened by the attitude that the social problem of poverty would like naturally sort itself out, which was a very common thing in the 19th century and, and I'm sure is, is still in existence. Very Malthusian. Right? Malthus was very much fashionable. He sucked. He really sucked. He also just believed that people who he didn't like should just be put on an island to die. So yeah, I'm going to give you some excerpts from this, from this article I read because I just couldn't put it any other way. Some who are already suffering from tuberculosis could slip down the social scale, reduced from the higher wages of a skilled craftsman to lowly day rates or sporadic casual labor. Episodes of ill health could reduce a stable family to poverty when the, when the male breadwinner was unable to work full-time and retain his former position. Women's wages were insufficient to support a family, and even single women struggled. Laundresses and seamstresses, paid by the peace, suffered from high rates of tuberculosis. Among the better-paid men, tin and coal miners were at risk because of dust, silicosis, and employment in damp, closely confined spaces. Those in the printing trades were highly paid, but still counted many tuberculous among their numbers. They, too, worked in overcrowded environments. Typesetters, whose job was sedentary, were often able to continue to work and to spread their germs, while they were sick, each cough a threat to their workmates. And to top it all off, 19th century thinkers considered race a predisposition to TB as an extension of the hereditary argument or explanation. So there was a lot of conversation about whether your blood or your class could predispose you to TB, discussions about whether the Irish were more prone, remember that the Irish were colonized people and they were routinely subject to overt racism and deprivation. Was this around the time that eugenics started yeah. entering the scene? It did. And there were some attempts to keep people with tuberculosis from reproducing. Great. Yeah. One of the most, the most effective measures that was taken against tuberculosis was the establishment of sanatoria. And one of the most famous ones was actually established in Saranac Lake. After, um, after this guy just, like, was despairing of his t 
tuberculosis diagnosis, and he decided to just go and like chill in the Adirondacks. He definitely found that the air got um, his symptoms into remission. So hmm. he decided to found a sanatorium um, in Saranac Lake. The idea of what the ideal climate for people with tuberculosis was would continue to change. So there was quite a lot of like tourism for medical reasons all around Europe and North America. It seemed to be effective in some cases, just like a rest cure. Yeah. And yeah, I had some stats for you about racial disparities and outcomes um, in the U.S. because the U.S. was obviously really big on, on that racial explanation. And there was a considerable difference in rates of white versus black infection with tuberculosis. So some mortality rates for you, for African-Americans with, with tuberculosis. So in 1910, you've got 446 per 100,000 versus the national rate at that time is 160. Oh my God. So 160 is the national rate and then 446 is for African-Americans in 1910. And then in 1940, the rate is 128 deaths per 100,000, which is much better than last time, but also compare that to the national rate of 46. Good Lord. Right? So these figures, especially in 1910, were supporting a belief that had been widespread among the white medical establishment immediately post-Civil War in Reconstruction, that individuals of African descent were just casualties of natural selection and that their poor health outcomes meant that they weren't suited to freedom. No. So for more on that, and the systematic deprivation of medical resources and information, see episode four of 1619. We've plugged it before, let's plug it again. It gives a really, really well-researched overview of that, and I can't even begin to do it justice because it's not my field and I do not have the knowledge to talk about this. And also something that we were independently talking about, which is this idea especially from that podcast that I don't think we talk about a lot of how slavery had so many direct ramifications in the way that we in the United States treat race and have internalized biases. Like slavery is something that I've been, I've been studying now for nearly a decade, just like over and over again, I'll learn about the transatlantic slave trade or write all these super specific papers about colonialism and slavery and, and the medical establishment. And I never thought to make that link between the history of slavery and the legacies of slavery that are still felt to this day. Mm -hmm. So, like, I am horrified by what's happening right now, but I'm taking this as an opportunity to, like, dive into those topics. Yeah. And it's fascinating and it's horrifying and, like, this process is going to be so uncomfortable, but it just needs to be done. Yeah, agreed. Um, Okay, well, that I mean, that brings us to the present day, so I'm going to jump right in. And I'm going to warn you right now, it is not better. <laughs> I wish it was more cheerful and I'm really sorry, but it's not. So, I mean, you talked about how impactful a disease this was and how many lives it affected during that time period over, over the course of all of history. Um, and in the present day context, uh, TB is actually still one of the top 10 causes of death in the world. And it's the leading cause of death from a single infectious agent. In 2018, which is sort of the last set of data that's been evaluated, it was estimated that 10 million people got sick from tuberculosis and 1.5 million died. But like so many of the other diseases that we talk about, it is both treatable and preventable. Sorry, this was just in 2018? Yeah. Oh, 
that that is a lot of people. Yeah, it's still wow. basically just as bad. I didn't know that. Yeah. Why, di- why didn't I know that? Because 95% of the cases are in the developing world. Oh, wow. <laughs> the realizations just keep piling on this week. And we're obviously going to talk about this more, but it, it's similar in terms of like poverty, housing, places of work affect who are more likely to get it. Let me just give you a little bit more on the health side of things. I mentioned at the top that there are variations in the bacteria that cause TB and they're called MDR-TB and XDR-TB. So let me unpack those acronyms. MDR stands for multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And that means that the bacteria has developed a resistance to the two most common tuberculosis antibacterial treatments. And that happens when anti-TB treatments are misused or mismanaged. XDR-TB stands for extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis. So that means it's resistant to like the four most common treatments for the disease. Okay, so you can either catch MDR or XDR-TB from someone because they have the bacteria in their body, or you can develop it if you stop taking your medication too early. And that's basically how these forms of the TB bacteria evolve. So basically, if you start taking an antibiotic, but then you stop before you have killed all of the bacteria, the bacteria that are left build up a resistance to the antibiotic. And if you start using that same medication again, it won't actually hurt them. And there are a lot of reasons why people might stop taking their medication. If you're in a remote area, there might be supply issues, so you can't get it in time. Maybe you can't afford to pay for it anymore. Uh, Maybe you can't miss another day of work to go pick it up. Sometimes sticking to this lengthy regimen of a pill every day is just hard work and you might forget. Um, Or maybe you move or you're migratory and you can't get to your medication anymore. I've also seen cases where people will take their medications for a few weeks, but then their cough starts to go away and they start to feel better. So they think that they're fine and then they just stop taking the meds. There are some ways of trying to mitigate this. The most common is called DOTS, directly observed treatment short course, which is exactly what it sounds like. You literally sit in a room with someone, either a health worker or a volunteer or a family member, and they watch you take your medication every day and like note it. There are also technologies such as getting daily text reminders or digital pill bottle caps that like record when you open your pill bottle. But basically the idea behind all of these methods is just some kind of accountability to take your medication regularly because going off of it causes so many issues. Anyway, all of those things lead to drug resistance. If it's MDR-TB, the medicine type becomes a little bit harsher on your body because it's trying to kill a more resilient bacteria. And it's a longer course of treatment, somewhere between nine to 12 months. If it's XDR-TB, it is a minimum of 24 months with incredibly intensive drugs. So it's pretty harsh on your body. Yeah, and as I mentioned also, just now, the majority of the cases of tuberculosis are in the developing world. So again, as of these 2018 statistics, 44% of cases were in Southeast Asia, 24% were in Africa, and 18% were in the Western Pacific. Um, And eight countries account for more than two-thirds of the global total of cases. So I'm not going to give a comprehensive list, but India has the most cases, and then Nigeria and South Africa are also on that list. And in any of those places, drug-resistant TB is a huge threat, but underreporting is also a huge issue. Um, in fact, Nigeria is notably one of the countries that seems to have the greatest gap between illness and reporting of illness. 
And just speaking on that topic specifically in Nigeria, it's estimated that something like 70% of cases aren't actually reported. And why might that be? Well, in part, it has to do with the education of healthcare workers. In part, it has to do with the likelihood of people who are sick seeking care. But the biggest issue is stigmatization of people who have TB. And that, you know, is an issue in the 1800s and it's an issue now. So that causes underreporting and that fear of stigma that leads to it is, uh, is reflected globally. Like that's true everywhere. There are still those same associations you talked about with poverty, um, but also with social marginalization, isolation, risk of transmission, and in some cases forced incarceration. So two separate points here. One is this idea of social marginalization is the same again as it was throughout history, right? Like I'm sick. People know I'm sick. They know it's contagious and they don't want to be around me. I might lose not only my social network, but also my livelihood. And that recreates the cycle of poverty. The other issue is this issue of forced incarceration. So this is like an entire lecture series that could be delivered on this. And it's really interesting. And <laughs> I'm going to try not to go too far into it. But there's a sidebar that's there in terms of human rights and ethics around tuberculosis treatment and the ability to force people on court order to remain in treatment. This is a huge debate in South Africa, and it's actually still happening in a lot of places, including the United States, where on court order, if someone is found positive for tuberculosis and they're vulnerable, so for example, they're homeless, they can actually be forced to stay in a sanatorium so that they have to get treatment. Um, and there's a place at UCLA called All of You that my friend Rach told me about. So there, there really is a debate here into the concept of what is the greater good, right? An individual's right to freedom, to take their medication, to deal with their treatment as they can and will, versus uh, the greater public health, mm. right? If you know someone is going to not complete their treatment and they're going to create multidrug-resistant TB and they're not going to get healthy and they might transmit it, do you have a responsibility to the community at large, to make sure that they get better. I mean, it's a conversation that we're having every day right now with yeah. with COVID, right? Like social distancing and how we enforce it and people's resistance to that as well. Like how do you how do you weigh someone's individual freedoms versus the public health implications of them not respecting public health advice? Yeah. And that's a huge debate and it's crazy. And I think we're actually now seeing one of the arguably the first example on a global scale of people being like the greater public health is more important like the mm -hmm. end i mean not everywhere but yeah point taken no okay yeah so as with most diseases we talk about <laughs> there are certain populations who are more vulnerable to tuberculosis due to their social circumstances and that's true across the world in the u.s as with everywhere else people of lower socioeconomic status have a much greater risk of becoming infected with tb Similarly, black folk are more likely to contract or have TB, but also the far majority of TB cases in the U.S. are actually immigrants or people who were born in another country. Likely, it's just that they had a form of latent TB and it became active. There are other strong associations with tuberculosis besides race, including household income and household ownership, comorbidity with diseases like HIV, diabetes, smoking. But it's worth noting 
that many of those associations have their own associations with race and racism. Households with lower income are more likely to have higher rates of TV, but also in the United States, black households are the lowest earning. So all of these associations sort of have linkages to each other. Essentially what I'm saying yet again is that racism based on skin color in the U.S. makes people of color, but especially black identifying people of color, more likely to become ill. And one of the other reasons that these communities are more likely to become ill with TB is that poor housing and poor employment conditions and close extended proximity to others is one of the factors that makes you most likely to contract the disease, like Angel was talking about in the context of like housing and the Industrial Revolution. And so that leads me into the other two areas that I really want to talk about regarding TB and where it is common. Taking it back to South Africa and Nigeria, despite not being in Southeast Asia, where the most TB in the world is, they have a lot of it because of mining practices. Miners are at risk for TB for a lot of reasons. Many of them are migratory. They cross borders for work. Migrant populations have less access to regular doctors or healthcare. Um, they often move after a few months in one place. Mining populations also have higher rates of HIV, which, as we've talked about, has a high co-infection rate with TB. Miners live in really cramped quarters, and they obviously work in really cramped quarters, too. And all of those places have poor ventilation, and they are being exposed to silica dust, which can increase rates of infection. And interestingly, Angeliki said this exact same thing when she was talking about mining in the 1800s. And it's just the same. It's still <laughs> the same. So that's unfortunate. Rates of TB amongst miners are 2,000 times higher than amongst individuals in the U.S., and within those communities, if they get sick, they're often unable or unwilling to seek treatment. So if they call out of work, they might lose their job. There's a lot of cheap labor in that sector that's available. And that would be the worst case scenario. Often they're sending money home to families. Also, due to being migrant labor or just being people who live in poverty and are greatly in need of a job, their ability to unionize and demand safer and healthier work environments or health care is severely limited. There's a lot of ways in which mining in sub-Saharan Africa takes advantage of people, obviously, but this one is, I think, under-discussed, in my opinion. Another area that has a lot of high TB positivity that I wanted to touch on is in prisons. So similar to mines, they have a lot of people living in really close quarters with limited access to quality health services. In On average, in any country in the world... TB cases in prison can make up to about 25% of that country's total TB rates. TB in the U.S. prison system is about 10% of all the cases in the country. Prisoners are less likely to get treatment and to finish that treatment than people outside the system, which is truly shocking, especially the bit about finishing treatment. But they're literally being watched every single second of the day. I, I think the statistic about them not finishing their round of treatment is shocking. I don't know why it is. I don't know if it's because there's not the medication available in the system or if it's because they stop or because they leave the system. I'm not sure why, mm -hmm. um, which would be interesting to look more into. Okay. You know, I, but it's wild. Wow. And I think it's also important to measure in here that that's the U.S. context and the rates of black people, but people of color in general incarcerated in the U.S. is statistically significantly higher than white people. 
So it should come as no shock that it disproportionately affects those individuals within the prison system. And it's actually especially, especially targeting Hispanic incarcerated communities. And that's likely due to ICE incarceration practices. So that's like um, illegal immigrants coming across the border or picking up people who don't have valid visas or green cards and incarcerating them. And then either latent TB becomes active or it's a bunch of people who are kept with like really poor incarceration practices, like really close together and are infecting each other. Similar statistics in regards to prison TB are present in most of sub-Saharan Africa also. And the quality of the prison systems in those countries are at higher, that are at higher risk are often worse. And so that creates a greater risk of infection and a lower likelihood of treatment. So just all around worse. Uh, oof. It's increasingly clear to me that like it's impossible to talk about disease without also talking about socioeconomic status. And therefore, it's impossible to talk about health or disease without talking about race or ethnicity. Yeah. And like the the interventions that need to be put in place to redress that kind of health disparity are so wide-reaching that, like, no wonder there's no political will to do that. It is a massive undertaking, but it is so messed up. And it requires the acknowledgement of inherent, not only structural inequalities, but also biases. There's there's a lot of nuance there that requires people to really Mm -hmm. do a lot of deep examination. That, all of that, was a depressing rant. Um, And basically much like many of the other diseases that we've talked about, much like tuberculosis throughout history, TB is a disease that's exacerbated through poverty, overcrowding, limited access to health services, and poor quality of life. And that's true everywhere in the world. And it has this really complex and lengthy treatment mechanism. And it's combined with this overall lack of knowledge, a stigma, and potential unwillingness to get tested. And that makes it a major killer and extremely widespread. And I wish I had a positive note to end that on. And I don't, but I do think that this is something that's not talked about enough is just that the very structure of the way people are living exacerbates this disease. You can come up with strategies and plans for like treatment and reducing stigma and doing all these things. But if people are living in poverty and they don't have anywhere else to lay their heads at night besides in a room with five other people, then, Mm -hmm. then what? I mean, for me, the big takeaway of this episode, I assumed that it was no longer a significant problem around the world. And the fact that I could be so unaware of that still is kind of shocking to me. And you explained to me why that is. And I totally take your point, And I think that's definitely true. But I think it's incredible that we, we can't hold more than one narrative in our minds at a time. Time to dismantle and rebuild our narratives. Exactly. It's like we were talking about before about like being able to tune out and addressing feeling guilty about being able to tune out. Like if your narrative is one that like this doesn't exist, it's it's historical, then you don't have to worry about mm-hmm. it. And it, that's much easier. Yeah, definitely. Tell me a hooray. Tell me something good. Okay, I made the most badass stir fry last night, and I had the leftovers for dinner tonight, and it was amazing. Can I please tell you all about it? Yes. Okay, great. It had ginger, it had garlic, it had onion, and it was like chicken thighs and carrots, and I had udon noodles in there, and then I made a dressing with lime and soy sauce, and I like, Mm. 
And then tonight I mm. added sesame seeds and it was like, it was badass. It doesn't sound all that complex, but like all those things together just took all of the stuff that's been inhabiting my mind this week and just like made me feel better. Sounds amazing. My hurry, I'm actually going to go back to my fermentation. Okay. I'm going to go back to my kombucha because I've been nailing some flavors. I've been making some like lavender syrup and like getting all intricate in it. But I was having a lot of trouble making them carbonated because of the bottles I was using. And so I got some swing top bottles and I made the one I have right now is a mint lime lavender dragon fruit. But I have to like burp the bottle so that it doesn't (laughs) explode in case it gets too carbonated. And I was like, it's not going to be bubbly, whatever. And I opened it over the sink and it like, (laughs) like it was the most satisfying like it everything in the bottle like rose up and it overflowed a little bit and it started bubbling and I was like oh my god I did it congratulations (laughs) but can I make a request you You need to start coming up with fun names for your flavors yeah that's a good call okay so I've also been making cocktails with the kombucha which is amazing that sounds fantastic and we were talking jokingly about how I should like sell like make a an alcoholic kombucha company with my friend who distills her own gin and I was, like, joking about names, and Adrian was like, you should call it BCC, Booch Cocktail Company. And I was like, oh, my God. And then the tagline can be, don't tell your friends. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, copyright pending, everyone? I think that's a, that's a great way to cap things off for ourselves. I do, too. Stay healthy, everybody. <laughs> um, try not to breathe other people's air. And uh, wash your hands. Don't touch your face. (laughs) Thanks for coming, everyone. And uh, don't touch your face. See you next time. (laughs) I'm done. We're not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. (laughs) Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya.